Welcome to Fifth Wall's Fly on the Wall podcast, where we explore the shifts occurring in real estate, technology, and society that are driving our cities towards a more equitable, green, and tech-enabled future. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode, I catch up with Steve Blank, founder of the Lean Startup Movement. Steve and I discuss the premise of Steve's research, delving into the reasons why large corporations struggle to innovate and how companies can reimagine their innovation and technology strategies. Enjoy the conversation. Well, Steve, thank you so much for joining. Where are you coming in from today? Uh, thanks for having me. I'm coming in from the coast of California, uh, uh, halfway between Santa Cruz and Half Moon Bay. Nice. Well, you've had, I think, such a illustrious, comprehensive career in and around venture and kind of the startup ecosystem, both as an entrepreneur yourself, and then also, I think, a thought leader around kind of the, the lean startup movement. Can you just give, you know, for those in the real estate industry that aren't as familiar with your background, can you give a cliff notes of kind of your bio for them? Yeah, uh, I think I've had a couple of careers. So, uh, I spent four years in the Air Force during Vietnam, a couple of years in Southeast Asia. Uh, and then I came to Silicon Valley and uh, did eight startups in 21 years, uh, kind of a string of attention deficit disorder uh, uh, companies, but uh, um, had the, or was part of, certainly part of four IPOs out of eight. Um, but the thing that actually made my career and, and what I teach about now are about the two failures, which left craters so deep they have their own iridium layer. Um, but, but those failures uh, actually helped me think about when I retired out of my last startup, the nature of innovation and entrepreneurship. Uh, and realized that the common wisdom, which we could describe uh, later, was wrong and helped create a, a method of building uh, new ventures and new innovations called the Lean Startup Method. And so now I teach at, uh, at Stanford as an adjunct professor and as an innovation fellow at Columbia University on the nature of innovation and entrepreneurship. And, and can you give people just like a, a quick synopsis of the the, the lean startup method. And, and I have to say with, with some credit due where, where it ought to be placed, when, when we started Fifth Wall back in 2016, we actually tried to kind of pioneer a new business model and a new approach to venture capital. And I would say a lot of your thoughts and your writings were inspirational to us as we, we launched that. So I have to say thank you. Yeah. Yeah. So, so do I get the check for a carry, Brendan, or just a thank you? Yeah, it uh, must be lost in the mail somewhere. So so, so the, lean, the core of the lean startup could be described in one sentence, which is uh, there are no facts inside your building, so get the hell outside. Uh, you know, the, the second, again, short but, but, but relevant quip is that no business plan survives first contact with customers. And, and now let me go back and, and, and talk about lean itself. But, but you ought to think about what those two sentences actually meant because they're, they're absolutely true. In the 20th century, uh, investors in early stage ventures simply said without, I don't ever think muttering these words, but what meant them was that startups were nothing more than smaller versions of large companies. But what they told their investments to do, their startups, was, you know, large companies write business plans. We want you to do that. Large companies give us five-year forecasts. We want you to predict the future. Large companies 
you know, hire management teams of sales, marketing, biz dev, engineering on day one. We want you to do that as well. And by the way, since we funded your vision, and here's the critical point, we want you to spend the next months or back then it was years building out the product or solution exactly as you sold it to us in your initial venture pitch. Any deviation from that was not considered innovative. It was considered a failure. And, and therefore, the entire model was what I would call execution. You were going to execute to the plan just like a large organization would do for product five, six, or, or 10 that's been around for 10 years. In fact, you know, on day one, a startup or new venture is nothing more than a faith-based enterprise. It's a religious activity um, because all you have is a series of untested beliefs. Um, so make a long story short, and my apologies for the soliloquy, when I retired, I, this light bulb went off, which said, you know, we've been trying to emulate large corporations and, and they've been kind of learning on how to build companies for a hundred years from tools and technologies out of business schools and consulting firms, et cetera. And so there was kind of a management stack uh, of thinking and tools for uh, corporates, but there was almost no thinking about how startups were different. And I realized we needed our own tools, our own techniques, because here was the other core idea. Large companies execute known business models, but startups, startups search for business models. And this distinction between search and execution had never, ever been articulated before. So I decided that we needed to build them. And it was a pretty heretical, you know, event of taking on everybody who said, well, Steve, we, you know, all these other people seem to think this is the right way to do it. And so I developed something called the customer development methodology, which was around that first insight that there are no facts inside the building, that all you're operating on there is hypotheses. And it's just a framework of how to get out of your office, you know, frame everything you had in your business plan, which you were calling a fact, actually admit that most of them are just effing guesses, you know, and we give them a fancy name called a hypothesis. And pretty soon, one of my uh, early students and one of the companies I invested in, a very smart guy named Eric Reese, uh, observed that, Steve, that in the 21st century, engineers are starting to use something called agile engineering to build products and services iteratively and incrementally rather than in a serial process, which we used to do called waterfall, that's a perfect match to this customer development model. And soon we paired those two together. And so we had customer development and agile engineering to build products incrementally and iteratively. And once we did that, we could get out of the building and test not only the ideas, but test the product or service by building what we call minimum viable products. That is small pieces or demos or spreadsheets or price list or whatever, way before we were actually ever shipping or, or selling the product. And then finally, there's only three pieces to lean, was that someone named Alexander Osterwalder came up with something called the business model canvas, which was a single piece of paper that allowed new ventures to kind of get reminded of what are the nine things that are critical that they need to figure out. One is, who are the customers? Two is, what are you building for them? What distribution channel? How are you going to get keep and grow them? What's the revenue model? You know, what activities are important? What, who are the, uh, what are the resources? Who are the partners and what are the costs? On day one, most of those are just guesses. And so now the lean methodology is map out your hypotheses with this canvas, get out of the building with a customer development methodology, 
build product or service incrementally and iteratively, continually getting feedback through these MVPs. I know that a lot of corporates try to emulate your methodology and bring it kind of in-house, but I guess what's your explanation for why corporate venture has struggled to replicate the innovation and the, and the, and the speed of iteration that can be achieved in an independent startup? Why is it so hard to do in big companies? You know, it took me a while to understand that. In fact, uh, you know, I want to apologize for every corporate who simply thought that they could take startup tools and apply them in large corporations. In fact, uh, you know, in May of, gosh, almost seven and a half years ago, uh, 2013, the Harvard Business Review put it on its cover, why the lean startup changes everything, which gave permission to corporates to go, oh, all we need to do is plug in these tools and, and we could be as agile. And I believe that as well. And, and uh, uh, you know, the, the sad report is what we created is seven and a half years of uh, innovation theater, not innovation. You know, um, in a startup, 100% of your company is focused on mission, which is searching and finding the business model. And we call that searching for what's called product market fit. That is, is the thing you're building, just like your search when you started the uh, fifth wall and, and the customers match. And, and how do you know they match in the simplest terms? When you show up, they grab what you have out of your hands even before it's done. You have product market fit. Uh, but, but if you think about it in a startup, it, at least when you're small, the entire company, there is very little overhead, is focused on searching and building out th that business model. And we're all passionately focused on, on search. Um, and by the way, you know, there's 100% commitment in a startup. We still kind of have a different ethos and generally than from large companies. People are working for mission, which is funny ways because they're also motivated not for mission only, but also for equity. Uh, that is, they're all shareholders to some extent and that uh, uh, liquidity event will have a meaningful impact on your life. Now let's fast forward to a 10,000 person company. Most of them, I'd say 99%, they didn't come to work or get hired for search. They get hired for execution, which means there's a business card, which is a hot link to a job spec, which was made by an HR person who realized that this job has been done before. It's a known set of activities. And that's what you're hired for is your ability to deal with repeatable and scalable activities. And so if you think of that distinction on day one, these are very different structures, very different motivations, very different people. And, um, and, and so trying to do innovation inside of an execution structure is by definition already hard because most people don't realize they're very different activities. I mean, they're barely related and requires um, um, leadership on the top to truly understand that you need to build uh, what these guys named uh, Tushman O'Reilly coined the ambidextrous organization, one that could execute and innovate at scale without destroying the core business, but realizing that all your innovations are eventually going to move to your core over a period of years. If your VP of sales is, you know, oriented for execution and the comp plan says X or Y, any deviation that might diminish that, like, no, you can't talk to customers about new products or, you know, that... That'll make them stop. I mean, you hear this a million times. Um, typically, the biggest killer uh, of innovation in, in large corporations is the head of sales or your general counsel. Can you imagine someone showing up in Marriott on day one and, and saying, 
hey, why, why don't we just rent out apartments of other people? You know, your general counsel would have said, like, you know, which attorney general would you like to, to be sued from first? Well, obviously, that was Airbnb. Um, and all those other innovations that actually don't make sense because you have obligations to shareholders, you have obligations to your board, you have obligations to not betting the company. Remember, every startup is a 100% risk bet on the entire company, not a piece of it, the entire company. There's no way you're making those bets in large corporations. So if you would just stack the columns of motivation, you know, uh, percent of people doing innovation, you know, um, barriers, et cetera, large corporations are at a disadvantage. The only thing that kept them in a leadership position in the 20th century was uh, access to capital. That is, startups in the 20th century were essentially ankle biters, you know, maybe got up to the ankles of, of large corporations because they were capital limited. I mean, they might raise five or 10 million bucks or maybe at the end, $30 million. But nowadays, startups have access to at least as much, if not more capital than large corporations. Boy, that world has turned upside down. So now you're combining the ability of startups to move with, with speed and urgency versus a corporation trying to protect its core business and trying to innovate. You know, it, it's not a fair fight anymore. And, and I think in, in the real estate industry, what you're describing is like acutely true, right? Because the real estate industry is it's 13% of the U.S. economy. And it's this industry that basically sat out two decades worth of innovation, right? The real estate industry effectively missed the entire internet and all of mobile. And in the last like five years, this kind of epiphany light bulb moment happened where real estate CEOs were like, oh, we have to have a point of view on tech. The tech boogeyman is coming for our business. And part of that was informed by exactly what you described, which is the experience of the hotel industry and first the OTAs, the price lines and the Expedia's the world, then the hotel industry and Airbnb. And then it started to come from other vectors, right? Suddenly now the data center, the REIT data center business became bigger than many of the big office and retail REITs. And at the same time, co-working was encroaching on, on the office industry. And so you had this clear motivation that we want to do tech, but I, as I've engaged with corporates, I've noticed this, this interesting dichotomy where no one understands their pain points with respect to technology better than the corporates themselves. They are acutely aware of what they would like to exist and intuitively what should exist. But at the same time, they're incredibly bad at selecting the companies to partner with and to engage with, meaning there's this kind of adverse selection where the companies, the startup companies that are well capitalized, have strong investors, strong teams, real growth, have the potential to scale. They don't wanna sign exclusive deals with big real estate corporates. They wanna be Switzerland. They wanna be neutral and grow and leverage the corporates where they can. Some companies that are sweating cash, right? That are not able to raise financings, they go to corporates and they kind of become corporate darlings. But at the same time, those are not the companies you want to partner with. Those are the, there's this adverse selection. And I guess when, when you've advised corporates, how do you advise them to overcome that adverse selection problem that seems to plague corporate venture capital so intensely? Well, you know, there are a couple things. And, and um, one is, let me remind your, your listeners, uh, and I'm sure this is true in real estate as well, 
Um, there are more innovators inside of large companies than there are in startups. It's a big idea. Um, they might have different risk profiles because they need a, you know, medical insurance or they need, you know, a guaranteed salary. Or if you really think about it, what you have internally almost always is a corporate VC group, a corporate M&A group, um, innovators and entrepreneurs trying to bang from the bottom saying, hey, we're over here, here, talk to us. Um, and, you know, and very smart people who at the bottom of the organization are the first people to tell you which external deals you should do because they're the guys who have to deal with this crap, but you put somebody in M&A who has no idea what the technology is about to kind of do a partnership with these second tier companies. Um, the point I'm trying to make is that part of the problem in large corporations is not the lack of innovation, though, though it's there's a bigger brain drain now than there was five or 10 years ago, um, but in fact, a, a failure of organizational design. That is, companies are still not designed to deal with innovation as an integral part. It's still kind of either a point activity or some silo or something else. And the, a potential solution is to try to think about if you want to survive, that you really need to be integrating these things um, at the, at the C-suite. Um, and you need to get aligned, obviously, with your board and your investors. I mean, if you're dealing with activist investors, maybe this isn't going to work. But if you have some control out of your own fate, I would be thinking about how to organize from the top and integrating these activities. And the activities I mentioned, sorry, were, are, are corporate VC, M&A, and an internal innovation process that, that says, oh, I understand, we could build, we could buy, we could partner, we whatever, but these are not separate activities. One of the interesting things also that, that I find fascinating about kind of an artifact of like old school corporate venture capital is this mentality of, of using corporate M&A and using corporate venture capital with an anti-competitive mindset. And what seems to happen is that almost accelerates the adverse selection because only the companies that are willing to sign exclusive deals with one big corporate, which tend to be the worst companies in the startup ecosystem, only those companies are chosen by the big corporates. And one of the approaches that we took at Fifth Wall is we said, well, what if we could build a consortium of the largest owner-operator developers from the same industry that are in fact competitive with one another, put them all in the same fund, and by virtue of having all that distribution, the very best startups would want to partner with us. So for example, in home building, Fifthwall has Lennar, DR Horton, Pulte, and Toll Brothers. So four of the five largest home builders are in our LP base. And what that kind of enabled us to do is, at the beginning, all these home builders were looking at the space called, what is today called iBuyers, right? So Open Door, companies like that. They were looking at the category, they were very interested in it, but they were all focused on these subscale companies that were willing to sign exclusive deals with them. And what we were able to do is kind of redirect that intention and say, why don't we focus with the best in class startup? A startup that's never gonna sign an exclusive deal with any of you. But by virtue of working with all of you, they can have more distribution and you can get access to the best entrepreneurs that are really gonna be able to accelerate your business. But it required a huge mental leap from these corporates to say, I'm gonna be in a corporate venture capital fund with my peers in my industry. And the reason I'm going to do that is because in so doing, I'm gonna get access to a higher quality startup, a higher quality entrepreneur that actually has the potential 
to more expeditiously change my business. And we've actually struggled in the early days to overcome that because it was so counter to this, I would say like a anachronistic 1990s style approach to corporate venture. I guess, how have you seen other corporates approach that, right? Because it is a real dynamic, this anti-competitive mindset. Well, I, th I think the, you know, what you just described there, you know, two new business models. One is yours, which is a new business model, which, which as, it, as it seems, is, is directionally correct. <laughs> and, and, uh, but also this mindset of, of large corporates are now realizing that, um, that there's stuff external to them that is so critical and important. Um, that they can make, as you said, adverse decisions to, to have exclusive. But the, but the new model is, is to kind of get the best in the breed. I also think what they're gonna discover is it's the creation of new business models or new technology that, uh, that they need to have an early warning sensing system about that are not only things that they could use, but things that might completely disrupt their, you know, how do you reach customers or you know, uh, different building techniques or, or uh, different ways people will be buying homes, et cetera. The pandemic has changed everybody's model. Um, you know, at the same time, the collapse of malls and, and the rest and the rise of uh, uh, online shopping and, and the question of whether people will ever come back to work five days a week. I think we're going to see an explosion of new business models that threaten almost every incumbent in that space. Uh, well, um, it, it, it's interesting hearing you talk because it sounds like you share a lot of the, I mean, you, you've kind of written about a lot of the things that to some extent we, we experienced as we were talking to these corporates and bringing them into our consortium. Like our consortium is now 65 owner operator developers of real estate who have never before invested in a venture fund from 15 different countries. And we, in that consortium, connect them to these technologies. But in doing so, we kind of learned that there's there's almost like these three buckets of motivations that go from like the most base to the most altruistic, enlightened, exalted kind of motivations. The first is what we were just describing, this anti-competitive mindset, which is like, I'm gonna invest in this technology, I'm gonna stop this technology, regardless of whether it's good, I'm partnering with my peers. That was like corporate VC, 1990s style. And to be honest, it does persist a little bit today. That's like bucket one. Bucket two, as we've encountered it, is I have these pain points, uh, I wanna get rid of them. <laughs> get rid of them. It's kind of like a, my business is inefficient, make it more efficient by tech enabling. So it's usually kind of enterprise software. So, you know, solutions that are workflow driven, that improve some internal processes, make them more efficient, make them more trackable, render them with data, but it's kind of like streamlining the core business. And the third is kind of what you were referencing, which is existential threats, meaning that technology and, and mobile and the internet basically unearth this kind of juggernaut of trends and consumer changing consumer behavior patterns that in and of themselves might be hard to understand, but certain features of it have the potential to disrupt my business, like Airbnb and short-term rentals and hotels. Meaning no one could have predicted that with the rise of just the internet. It just kind of evolved out of consumer behavior. And it was a new business model and it competed directly with hotels. And what we've seen is that corporates that lean most aggressively into that last category tend to be the most successful, which is they approach businesses that they're like, this is interesting. It's kind of scary. 
it has the potential to really threaten my business. I'm not sure how I'm going to work with them. You know what? I'd rather work with them than not because I'd rather stay close. I'd rather understand. To your point, I'd rather internalize those learnings, internalize those insights, internalize that new business model into my business and find ways to cooperate with them, to accelerate each other's businesses. That has consistently been the most successful approach. But what's unfortunate is that a lot of corporates sit in those first two buckets still, which is stop my competitors from using this technology or make my life easier. And that's corporate VC to them. So, so Brandon, what you, what you just said made me think about, you know, uh, this thing of, uh, that we say about startups is that if you're not, uh, if you're not failing a, a lot, you're not trying hard enough. Right. Meaning, you know, failure is an integral part of, of learning and discovery. Um, that is when you're testing hypotheses, it's the scientific method. And, and you, you know, have a hypothesis, you design an experiment, you test it out of the building. And most of the time, just like in a lab, it blows up or doesn't work or whatever. And we don't fire the scientist when that happens once. We just, you know, kind of clean up the lab from the explosion. We run another experiment. And, that, and, and that's the constant process of, of, of learning and discovery. Um, and which is, makes kind of the people who do that have a kind of different mindset than those who come to work for just execution. And I want to just remind that, uh, your listeners of that. But what you just said reminds me of, of corporate VCs. The motto should be, if you're not scared yet, you're not investing right. Um, I mean, that would be the model. If you're comfortable doing investing, you're about probably on the path to put your company out of business because right. it's, because you might as well just put the money in the bank and get 1% interest be, because those are the safe bets. Um, you know, real estate venture capital and, and, and the whole notion of innovation is that most of these things fail. That's a big idea. So right. the people are going to be your customers are, are the, the, the CEOs whose boards are hitting them with a stick or those smart enough to go, wait a minute, there's actually writing on this wall and it, it doesn't look good because it's written in blood. Wait a minute, that's our blood. We might want to like figure out how to fix this. And, and again, it's hard for, remember I talked about this ambidextrous uh, uh, organization and you know organizational design that actually recognizes that in environments like this, you need to be still executing your core business, but by understanding, you need to build out a cloud of innovation processes, not just activities, not just an investment or an M&A, but it needs to be a continual cycle because all those things that look like they're outliers will eventually, some of them will converge in, in two to four to five years to be your core. Um, you know, I kind of now come to the conclusion uh, that... Uh, that innovation happens in companies in one of three times. One is when you fire the CEO. Uh, that is, there's a leadership change. Almost always the new guy or woman doesn't come in and say, hey, everything was fine, let's, let's, right. let's keep doing it. That's an opportunity for innovation. The second one is, is when there's a crisis. Um, and, and, you know, the pandemic is certainly a crisis for the real estate industry and everything from hotels to, I mean, I don't have to tell your industry what it's like, but, but, but if you're still doing the same thing when we're out of the crisis, you've missed a huge opportunity, A, or B, the business models will change, which will force you either out of business or, or to change. But that's number two. But number three is if you're a very, very smart CEO and management team, you have early warning radar going on 
that says, you know, bing, 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 something's coming. We don't know what. Let's build an organization before stuff happens to us. And that's rare, but I think it's been rare because we haven't built a playbook for CEOs. Much like I built a playbook for startups with the lean methodology, there really isn't an innovation playbook for large corporations yet. I'm actually in the middle of writing one. But, oh, right. Cool. Yeah, because, I, because I realized I was the cause of a ton of innovation theater, I, I think I owe it back to... Um, I'll have to, it, I, know what, I know what my next Christmas gift for all of our corporate LPs next year is going to be. Well, it's well, out next the, Christmas. the Christmas gift will be, I'll be able to write it. But it starts with kind of a big idea of, you know, everybody in the management team and board needs to agree on context. And by context, it's simply, are we screwed or is everything okay? I mean, it's simplest, right? If everything's okay, then let's just keep doing what we're doing. If we're screwed or we see something coming and that's not a, a two-foot wave, but it's a 200-foot wave, then perhaps we ought to agree that we need to organize. And then, and, and why I say with your board, because sometimes this requires things that will take a hit to, to dividends or stock price or whatever in the short term for a long-term change in, in business model or strategy. The second thing is getting your uh, exec staff aligned. Again, if your head of sales is, you know, is compensated on X, maybe you want to change some of that so they have overrides on some of these crazy new things. So instead of sitting there like this or figuring out how to screw it, they'll actually be motivated to, to incent it. And then building a process that cuts across all, the, all these traditional silos of, uh, you know, so so one is context, second is leadership, uh, third is building innovation pipelines and process. Um, and, and then, you know, underneath all that is all the support things that need to change. You know, your financial people need different models for investments in long-term innovation versus ROI calculations for existing construction, right? If you're using the same model, right, then everything new gets, well, it doesn't meet the, you know, our financial model or HR. If we're just, you know, putting the most experienced people rather than the most creative people into some slots, you've kind of missed the opportunity that because it's usually the crazy people who create new things. Um, it's usually, not, not always, but somebody's been executing the same job for 15 years is sometimes not as amenable to change as some others. So these require changes on the bottom as well. But there, there is a playbook one could build for innovation in, in large corporations. But it really starts all the way on the top with what kind of you saw when you were building fifth wall is that the context has changed. The world's changed and there's opportunities to do different things with different models. And sometimes companies just go out of business because either their board and or their CEO don't get it and, and stuff happens to them. You know, people forget that there's a life cycle of corporations. Um, it used to be a public company in the US survived for about 50 years on the New York Stock Exchange in the middle of the 20th century. That's a joke now. The average life cycle of a public company is about 15 years rather than 50 and decreasing, not because CEOs have gotten stupid, but because of everything we've just described is that the world around us is changing at such a rapid pace. You know, internet, globalization, new tech, new business models, you know, piles of VC money for startups, not large corps. That, that makes CEO decision-making so much harder. And in yeah. fact, what I remind my students and they were, corporate I talked to is, you know, everything you learned in business school, other than accounting, if, you, if you've been to business school longer than five years ago, is obsolete. It's a big idea. Um, it's, and, so, 
yeah. one of the things you said that just that that strikes me is you know that there is this when we obviously talk to corporates they compare investing in say fifthball or any corporate venture strategy they compare it on an roi basis to projects they know so literally they're like well I know if I replace a roof at this building, I know what the ROI of that is. And now you want to have me put $20 million into fifth wall. I can't see the ROI. And I was, you know, I almost want to say, well, th that's like one surefire way to ensure that you're on the wrong side of history, right? Like that, that, is, that is a lockstep way to make sure you're part of that, you know, increasing death rate of public companies. Like, what worked historically won't work in the future. And the other thing you said that, that really stuck with me is the, the idea that you should be a little scared, right, in these partnerships. Um, you know, we would talk to some uh, corporations early on and they would say, yeah, you know, we, we started doing corporate uh, VC. We started investing in startups. And typically what happened is it was like the person at the office who used Facebook the most was a venture capitalist the next day. It was like a battlefield promotion and now you're a venture capitalist. And like, it's kind of fun. It's it's kind of fun it's cool and i was like look i do venture capital for a living let me tell you if you're having fun you're doing it wrong it's not supposed to be fun it's actually supposed to be mainly scary and intense and confusing like those are the sentiments you should have around doing corporate venture and i think over time it is changing that's the positive news i think more corporates are embracing that change they are seeing that this this juggernaut of technology is coming towards them and that doing corporate venture, investing in companies you don't fully understand the nature of the partnership or the, the provable ROI is a way of staying ahead of the curve of, of avoiding disruption. Um, but anyway, I, I'm excited to send your book to all of our, um, our corporate LPs. I think it'll be good reading for them. Well, I think, I, I think, you know, the high order bit, Brendan, is that there really needs to be a different mindset now for CEOs who want to survive for the next 10 and 20 years. I mean, it, it's quite possible to eke out profits, you know, with existing business models. And, you know, if you're going quarter to quarter and you're a public company and you're, you know, the question right now is, is your CFO driving the company or is your innovation model driving the company? Right. And, 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 and again, I'm, I don't want to diss P&L. Obviously, the core needs to be profitable to survive. Um, but, but if that's the only metric you're using, that is, if the only metrics you're using to see the future are financial metrics on current business model, um, I will suggest that life is not going to be pretty in five years, certainly in 10, um, particularly in the real estate business, which is undergoing finally the massive change that every other business, uh, you know, how would you like to be the CEO of Blockbuster in the last three years? Because that's what one of your one of your companies might be if they're not paying attention. And right. and again, this isn't an intelligence problem. You, as a, you know, I want to just tell all your CEOs of large corporations, you don't need to understand the tech or the new business model. You do need to understand that the mindset needs to change of you and your people, and that they're not the same people. Um, that you you need to be able to, as I said execute your core business at the same time, building an end-to-end -end process that allows continuous innovation with different risk profiles, different financial metrics, different whatever, um, you know, different promotion stuff, different types of investment techniques that integrates all this stuff with the goal that says, if we believe the world is gonna be different, 
how are we going to be part of that rather than just be kind of roadkill? That, right. Right. You, that, you want to be a part of the change, not victimized by it. Right. right? And that is, I think that's, that's exactly what, um, that's exactly what corporate venture capital done right holds the potential to do. And, um, and I think the, the, the message that, you know, for public uh, companies, they need to r remind the street and, and which, you know, they understand in other markets is, listen, we're going to be running a lot of experiments. We're not putting the core business at risk. Some of these subsidiaries or, or tests or whatever are going to fail, you know, and a couple will blossom. And let me remind you what the, what the success to failure rate looks like in a, in a VC funnel. And we're in that same kind of activity. We're not betting the entire company. The mistake that, that some large companies get into innovation make is, you know, put all the chips on 32 black and the roulette table, right? right? It, it, yeah, you can decide you want to bet the company, but that's an execution play, not an innovation play. So that's why you make lots of either small bets or buy things that are, you know, further along that have de-risked the things that are pricier or get into consortiums or whatever. But there's a series of portfolio of these activities that when you finally get signal out of noise, you could say, you know, this looks like, you know, it might actually have some product market fit here and potentially with partnered with us could get scale and we could make change and, you know, obscene profits if we kind of figure this one out. So, well, Steve, it's, it's always so interesting hearing your thoughts. I've, I've followed them throughout my career. I've hopefully put them to work as best I could in building Fitball. And I think all the real estate CEOs that watch this and are thinking about how to improve and kind of future proof their business and kind of, address this confrontational change of, of really tech innovation. It's just exciting to hear your thoughts. And I'm excited to read your new book. And I just wanted to thank you for taking the time to chat. Well, thanks for having me, Brendan. And I think, uh, I think both this, uh, this uh, video uh, podcast and, uh, and the work you're doing with uh, corporates are going to accelerate change and, and help them survive uh, into the next decade. So uh, thanks for I hope you. so too. <laughs> well, thanks, Steve. Thanks for listening to this episode of Fly on the Wall. All of these episodes and more are available on our YouTube channel. To learn more about Fifth Wall, visit our website at www.fifthwall.com.